це очевидно для всіх, що таке Україна, що таке присутність нашого прапору. Коли є український прапор, є цивілізованість, є свобода, є соціальне забезпечення, є інфраструктура, є безпека, є кому дбати про людей, є все те, що зникає, що руйнують, коли приходять окупанти. Ось що... After months of fighting in a hasty Russian retreat, Ukraine's armed forces liberated the southern city of Kherson last week, scoring a major strategic and symbolic victory. Kherson was the first major city Russian forces captured following their February 24th invasion, and its return to Ukrainian control appears to mark a major watershed in the nearly nine-month-old war. In addition to facilitating a platform for additional Ukrainian gains in the east and south, Kherson also provides a bulwark against potential Russian advances westward along the Black Sea coast. But with winter approaching, Moscow appears intent on imposing maximum pain on Ukrainians with a massive bombing campaign against energy infrastructure and other civilian targets. So what does the war look like after Kherson? Stick around because I got just the guest to unpack it all. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s Funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And back by popular demand, joining me from Mount Vernon, Virginia, on land that was once owned by George Washington, is military analyst Michael Kaufman. Director of the Russia Studies Program at the CNA Corporation, a fellow of the Kennan Institute, and a senior editor at War on the Rocks. Welcome back to the Vertical, Michael. It's good to have you back on again. Hi, thanks for having me back on the, your show. Oh, oh, you're always welcome. And so, Michael, to get the ball rolling, can you unpack the Ukrainian victory in Kherson? What facilitated it? What made this possible? And most importantly, what does it mean going forward? Is this a major watershed that many have been making it out to meet be? Volodymyr Zelensky compared it to the Normandy invasion and called it the beginning of the end of the war. What's your take on this? What made it possible? Where are we going? How much of a watershed is it? Sure. So I guess let me talk a, a bit about the the history, at least how I think this operation developed. Um, early on in the war, when the Russian military was incredibly overstretched, they were defeated north of Mykolaiv, as when, at Voznesensk. And they were left trying to hold the outer boundaries of the province of Kherson. In fact, it looked like that was their objective, and they were trying to stick fairly closely to the actual political administrative boundaries, because Vladimir Putin wanted to annex these territories, right? He wanted Kherson, Zaporizhia, Donetsk, Luhansk, and actually also Kharkiv too, probably. I think by middle to late spring, it became clear that eventually the Russian military effort was going to run out of steam, and being on the western side of the Dnieper River was going to be a really precarious foothold, right? This is considered the right riverbank. Right. And, and the reason for that is that they were very close to Ukrainian lines to Mykolaiv, uh, and there were only a few bridges connecting the rest of the territory that Russia occupied to their forces in this western part of Kherson. And so over the course of summer, when Ukrainians received HIMARS, they began striking away at bridges and the ground lines of communication and logistics. 
And then eventually when the Russian military effort ran out of steam by around, I'd say, July, if you remember, there was kind of an operational pause. After Russian forces took Severodonetsk and Lysychansk, they, it didn't look like they had it in them to push the Bakhmut line, basically the Soldar Bakhmut line, any further. They were they were low on manpower, running low on ammunition. So we get to the Ukraine offensive, uh, end of August, right? And Ukraine seizes the initiative, and it conducts two sort of uh, what I would call interrelated, not quite simultaneous, but concurrent offensives, Kherson and Arkham. Kherson is the main offensive. It involves a much larger front with a bulk of forces. But the Ukrainian plan is to try to attrition Russian forces and then slowly press in. Because Russia actually has its better troops in Kherson, right? And the Ukrainian offensive that just goes straight at the lines would have resulted in very heavy casualties and not necessarily in, in, in significant territorial gains. Kharkiv was launched about a week after and a lot of people think that Kherson is a big distraction for Kharkiv, but that's not really true, actually. Kharkiv mm -hmm. was meant to be a secondary effort, and it just happened to have been wildly successful, right, beyond Ukrainian expectations, because they got there, and there was little in the way of Russian troops, and what there was was barely 20% manning, so they had a huge break out of Kharkiv, right? They were very surprised. It was meant to be a politically successful offensive in the sense that they would take territory quickly, to show us and the Europeans that yes, Ukraine can indeed take territory. That was a political requirement in the fall, right? Whereas Kyrgyzstan was meant to be a phased offensive war. Over time, they would press Russian forces out with the objective of avoiding a bloody fight over the city, right? Because if Ukrainian troops had to take the city of Kyrgyzstan, the regional capital, right? By assault, by urban fighting, it would have ended up looking like Mariupol, right? And that would have been a very pyrrhic victory. Meaning, yes, at the end of the day, you could say that you took Kyrgyzstan, but then when the gaggle of journalists showed up like they did last week and they looked around, they wouldn't have seen a perfectly intact city with life in it. They would have seen a city wrecked by urban combat. Okay, so I'll wrap up the this, this story by saying that this is kind of the Ukrainian vision. I think on the whole, uh, they were able to achieve their, their objective of taking Kherson, of pushing Russian forces out, and of uh, avoiding unnecessary damage to the capital and to the region. I think that they made a bit of a trade-off, to be honest. Uh, the Russian forces were able to withdraw in a uh, cohesive sort of organized retrograde operation. They could pull most of their equipment out with them, which means that the Ukrainian military will have to face them again later on in this war on a different front. I think taking Kherson is a strategic victory because it now eliminates the prospect of any follow-on Russian campaign to seize the Ukrainian southern coast. Right. That means now there's no chance of Russian forces getting to Mykolaiv and Odessa, as I think Putin very much wanted. That's big, though. So Odessa is safe now, in your in your estimation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's no there's no land campaign now that makes sense because the Russian military no longer has a foothold on the western side of the river. Mm -hmm. Right now, it's now it's profoundly unrealistic. Uh, the second part of it that's relevant, of course, it'll allow Ukraine to move up HIMARS and strike deeper into uh, the occupied South. Although they won't be able to reach Crimea with HIMARS systems, but they can start eating away Russian forces over the winter, and they can free up all the troops that are in Kherson and now shift them over to you know the Donbas or to Zaporizhia. Uh, the the other side of that coin, though, is the Russian military will now consolidate defensive lines behind the natural barrier, which is the Dnieper River, 
-hmm. They will ship forces over to the Donbass and uh, going into the winter, you know, the Russian military's plan to me appears to be to go on the defensive, to entrench, and to try to reconstitute their forces. Uh-huh. So, so do you see this as a major watershed, as a major turning point? I, I mean, I'm leaving aside Zelensky's comments about whether it can be compared to the Normandy invasion at the beginning of the end of the war. Um, is, how big of a watershed is this in this war? Honestly, no. I think Kherson was the most likely area where Ukrainian forces were going to achieve a military victory. I think Kharkiv was actually the real surprise in September. Mm -hmm. uh, it was for me. I think it was very much for Ukrainian colleagues as well. And it's good to have pleasant surprises, right? Um, I think that looking at Kherson, it was a very tough battle with high casualties, and it was pretty grinding. Mm -hmm. And the question is, if, we, if we're looking out into this war, perhaps neither Kharkiv nor Kherson are necessarily a model but which one looks much truer to to the basically the the likelihood that future fighting is going to reflect either Kyrgyzstan or Kharkiv? And my view of it is that Kyrgyzstan is much more reflective of how future battles mm -hmm. go. Because yes, it's a big success, but on the other hand, it's pretty clear that if Russia can make anything at all out of mobilization that future territorial gains will be challenging and they'll be costly, right? So, and, and I say that to manage people's expectations because a lot of people confuse winning for having won, right? Mm -hmm. And they think like, well, Ukraine has success in Kharkiv and another success in Kherson, so this thing's gonna get wrapped up pretty fast. Yeah, uh, boy, that is very, very lackadaisical and simplistic in projecting out mm -hmm. outcomes because the reality is Ukraine's gonna need a lot more equipment and ammunition to sustain this war. And it's not, I don't think it's going to be over uh, in short order. Right. We were, well, we're expecting in the lame duck another appropriation to be to 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 to, to be made. Um, a lot of people are arguing the president should go to the lame duck and ask for even more than he's asking for, so he won't have to keep going back to Congress to to, to get that to get 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 those weapons flowing. There's this ongoing debate about tanks and fighter jets mm -hmm. um, right now that uh, that 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 this shows no sign of abating. I wanted to shift gears before I kind of get back, get back into where the war is going to progress after Kherson. You just got back from Ukraine. Um, yep. You were actually were in Kherson, is my understanding. Um, what did you What did you learn in Ukraine? Did you see anything there that surprised you? Did you see anything? Did you see what you expected to see? How did it affect your perspective on the on on on, on the process of this war? So I think I saw first the military that had really good morale and felt like they felt like they were winning i saw a military effort that was very ground up you know organized by volunteers horizontal linkages a lot of working around the system a lot of open uh open source apps or commercial apps and putting things together but like ukrainians were making it work if you're if you know much about ukraine or if you've spent any time in ukraine you know that this is kind of like the ukrainian way yeah and and I don't like it when people try to um, uh, sort of sensationalize it as this remarkable new way of war. It isn't. Ukrainians would love to have protective mobility. They'd like to have proprietary technology. They'd like to have a lot of things that the country like the United States has, but they don't. So they're winning with what they have. And you can clearly see it there. Um, 
they they don't have access to a lot of the tools that we might that we might have, but they're putting it together and they're putting it together pretty smartly. And it's a societal effort. And a lot of people there are not 20 year olds, you know, they're they're 40 year olds, they're my age. Uh, and many of them are veterans. They've been fighting since 2014 or 2015 too. Yeah. Um, on the whole, I didn't see too much. I thought I didn't see too much that surprised me. I think what I'd say is that despite public appearances and the way things may look on social media, first Ukrainians have uh, a healthy appreciation and respect for the challenge of fighting the Russian military. Right. It is. These are these are difficult battles. Uh, there's a fair deal of attrition on both sides. They're, they're in, in private, I think Ukrainians take mobilization much more seriously. I think they're much more concerned about uh, future flying from Belarus reappearing again, which mm. you might be interested in, Brian. Um, yeah. I think that uh, the you know, the day-to-day -day life there is quite remarkable to observe because, you know, Ukraine has adapted to the regular strikes and air raids. You know, they've enacted electricity conservation at night in response to the Russian campaign against Ukrainian uh, critical infrastructure. Uh, in general, you see kind of life goes on in Ukraine. Um, it's a very, it's a pretty resilient society. So, it. It, it, it's pretty interesting to observe. I mean, I, I learned a lot of things on the battlefield, some of which I won't discuss, but mm -hmm. um, I, I, think, I think in general, uh, if, if, if you're there and you're watching it, you appreciate the, both the difficulty of this fight and uh, how, how well Ukrainians are putting it together, given what they have available to work with, right? So it's yeah. fair to say you were impressed by what you saw there. Um, yeah, yeah. And and also, but, you know, the other thing I was impressed by was Ukrainians are sober-minded much more so than many Western observers who, who see this conflict by scrolling to a Twitter feed, right? Whereas Ukrainians are much more realistic and understand the extent of the challenge they have mm -hmm. in a potentially prolonged war with Russia and what they would have to do to steadily uh, liberate territory, right? Right, right. Like, well, one has to wonder how much longer we're going to be able to watch this war from a Twitter feed, but that's a, that's a whole other topic. Michael, <laughs> you piqued my interest with the Belarus piece you just kind of threw in there. Um, are we, should we be expecting something from the, Bel the direction of Belarus? So, I, okay, I've always been pretty skeptical on this, and I still am, but at least coming back from, from this, trip what the sense i got is that that's a space to watch because if you see uh the the number of russian troops deployed in belarus grow significantly and if you see russia add a substantial amount of uh heavy equipment mechanized uh equipment and armor to that deployment then it's worth having a much closer look i think that's a situation that if it's going to develop, then maybe worth looking in the next two months. Uh, right now, a lot of the Russian troops that were deployed there seem to be mobilized personnel as like outflow for training, basically get them out to Belarus to those ranges, and also extracting equipment from Belarusian warehouses. The Russians have been uh, getting out to help replenish their forces. But uh, there has been some heavy Russian equipment arriving in the last couple of weeks. And I think there is a Ukra there is a Ukrainian concern long term that uh, Russia could redeploy forces to Belarus and try a northern front again. Not so another so another assault on Kiev. No, 
No, right, okay. just, I was literally, I was literally okay, good. I was, I, <laughs> just, just as you were about to say that, I was about to say not as another assault on Kiev. But, okay. Um, but, but okay. So let's put Kiev to the side for the moment. Uh, but there are other critical areas of vulnerability, such as ground lines of communication in western Ukraine and electricity infrastructure near the Belarusian border. That's very significant. Okay. So there are other areas and points of vulnerability that I think Ukraine has that that uh, draws concern. Now, do I think uh, another uh, another Russian attack from Belarus is very likely? Right now, I don't. But that's like I said, it's a space to watch. And remember, look, Ukrainians have a natural concern. I think in that, given Russian forces were largely able to withdraw from Kherson. Right. I won't say unscathed, but with a lot of their equipment and personnel intact, they have a sizable amount of military capability that they could redeploy elsewhere. Right. And they're going to be watching to see where it goes. Is it going to go to the Donbass? Or is it going to go to Zaporizhia? Or is it going to exit via exterior lines of communication? And then they're going to find 20,000 troops appearing in Belarus. Right. It's, it's a it's a very logical question to ask. So the thing to watch right now is the Russian deployments, like where these troops that pulled out of Harrison are going to go, um, because these are basically the better troops that they have on the battlefield at the moment. So really, where they go is going to tell the tale of where Russia is going to go next. Yeah, because they're going to plus them up with mobilized personnel. They'll pull them out, right? They'll raise uh, manning tables. Basically, the manning levels will go up in these units, and then they're going to redeploy them somewhere. Right. And the question is, where are they going to be holding a defensive line? So for me, the outlines of, of sort of Surveykin strategy, the general that's been appointed now in charge as the overall commander of the operation, are, are, are fairly evident, which is try to hold a defensive line from the Dnieper across Donetsk and Luhansk, entrench, right, build up reserves and ability to rotate troops, try to use all these people that they've mobilized, not just as a desperate measure to stabilize the lines, but to actually create additional units to fill out units that have been badly uh, depleted, and then see what, what the state of the Russian military is comes end of February, mm -hmm. let's say. So the Russian strategy to defend while also conducting a sustained campaign to destroy Ukrainian critical infrastructure. and to make life in Ukraine difficult, to increase refugee flows, to prevent return of investment, and to make sustaining Ukraine materially costly for the West, right? Mm -hmm. that, 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 to me, appear to be sort of the two pillars of the Russian strategy. Like, I'm not saying I have a right. I'm just sort of observing. Right, right. This, no, that, that, my that sense of, this is my sense of the strategy. And, and you can see it. I, I think there's enough evidence, or at least the preponderance of evidence points me in that direction. Right. So, so that's what the Russians are doing. What do we expect the Ukrainians to do, and what should we be watching for to give hints about that? Sure. So, I think the okay, I think the the Ukrainian strategy, at least as I understand it, is first and foremost to prevent Russian force reconstitution. Right. Not let the winter become a break, but actually to keep pressing the Russian forces. They have the advantage in uh, quality in terms of strike means. That is, they can win an attritional battle most places where they pick it if they want to. Second, to try to still pursue localized offensives. Okay, the weather on the ground might be really bad in November and December, but then it'll harden and freeze up. Okay, winter does have an effect. It constrains you in terms of capacity of large-scale offensives. I mean, you can do them, but it's risky. It, but it's not going to stop the fighting. 
right? Mm -hmm. So we're not, we should not expect a winter pause. The, the Ukrainian no. statements that they're going to continue fighting through the winter is not just bravado. That's real. No, no. But 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 I'm skeptical that, that you're going to see a, a major concerted offensive at the operational level, like you saw Kharkiv or Kherson, right? And and you're going to see fighting in the winter to be in part positional, to be about trying to gain position advantage to for a resumption of offensive operations in the spring. So the Ukrainian goal is first, prevent the Russian military from being in a position to resume offensive operations in the spring. That is, it's on the defensive now and keep it on the defensive when it comes out of the winter. And that means more continuing long long range HIMARS strikes and, and the like? Yeah, it means attritioning the Russian military so that they're basically constantly on the defensive and trying to replace forces. And also, it means preventing them from building up ammunition. Ammunition is now going to become a very significant factor for both sides. Ukrainian ammunition and its availability uh, is entirely dependent on uh, external Western support. Russia is low on ammunition. I think one of the biggest reasons the Russian forces likely withdrew from Kherson is because across the board, they're trying to conserve ammunition. They spent too much over the course of spring and summer. And I think their position in Kherson was untenable. All right, that said, Probably the good news is that the Russian military won't be able to restore offensive potential. The challenge will be they can they can extend the war, right? They can potentially sub extend the war by a considerable amount of time in by consolidating defense and by making further Ukrainian gains much more costly or difficult, right? And so I think the uh, second part of Ukrainian plan is to build out new operational formations, right? Basically also reconstitute their forces from losses they've taken over the last couple of months, try to integrate more and more Western equipment. Yeah. Uh, and another part of it is find answers to the Russian strike campaign, right? Air defense is a really big issue. Mm -hmm. It's a very significant issue. I think we got after air defense late, like we got after everything else late. So at least we're consistent in getting after every single military challenge Ukraine has pretty late, um, well after it's emerged. And we're getting after it in the same way that we that we were resolving the the problem of Ukraine running out of artillery and artillery ammunition by providing a panoply of different artillery pieces uh, that were available. And so now we're going to have again the challenge of providing lots of different types of air defense systems too. Some with ammo, some with less ammo, and uh, it 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 will be good. It will be good to try to resolve the Ukrainian challenge with air defense systems in a better way than than how we approach the artillery issue. Mm -hmm. That's my own personal view. I'm not saying it's possible. I'm, I'm sure lots of people who are working on this are thinking, hey, you know what? That's a great idea, Mike. It's as though we hadn't thought of that. I get it. That, that, <laughs> that, you, know, that, you know, they're working with what they have. I understand that this right. is not a genius thought and that the people who are actually in charge of supplying Ukraine are doing their best with what countries are willing to offer. Right. So, so when you say repeating the artillery issue, you mean the just this long drawn out process where where we appear to dither about giving Ukraine something, or what? What do you what What do you mean by repeating the artillery issue? No, I mean the fact that we gave them a petting zoo of fourteen different types of artillery. Ah. Systems, okay. The Ukrainians now will have to figure out how to maintain and repair, and the fact that ammo on these things is often not necessarily interchangeable. Uh huh. So okay. yeah, we basically. You know, they got some really good stuff. They got things that people rummaged in their backyard and found some, you know, 70s, 80s Cold War junk that they were willing to give and everything in between, mm -hmm. right? And Ukrainians are 
are, are forced to put this together and try to run a war effort with this panoply of different right. artillery pieces of different types and right. uh, different technical requirements and and um, and, and also with uh, more specific ammunition needs and I mean that's kind of how a lot of the of the of the Western support has been just giving them a the big diversity of equipment. Right, and I guess it's a good thing that the Ukrainians are really good at MacGyvering this stuff, as, yep. as you said earlier. Before I move on to the last thing I want to talk about in the first half, uh, you said something that kind of caught my attention. You said attrition, if I heard you correctly, attrition favors Ukraine. Is that the case now? Because this was counterintuitive to how we viewed this at the beginning of the war. Would be The assumption was that attrition favored Russia. Okay, so the beginning of, okay, the assumption was that attrition favored Russia, right? Uh, only at the point, or, or at least in the early months, when the United States and the other European nations weren't substantially involved as material parties to the war. It did favor Russia. And uh-huh. to be perfectly honest, I can see a, a rather different trajectory for this war if the United States and other NATO countries don't get involved in helping Ukraine. That's the reality. After June, you can you can imagine a rather different trajectory. So if you if you appreciate the fact that uh ukraine is able to stay in this war effort because it is being provided with ammunition by the west is being provided with equipment by the west that equipment when damaged is being pulled out of ukraine to be serviced and repaired in in western countries right and and then re re inserted uh, to the battlefield and that ukraine can expect further support that is yes it may be able to get tanks or aircraft and other systems that it hasn't gotten yet right but they're under discussion meaning um, you know, across the board, uh, each time each time we were hesitant to give a system, over time we eventually agreed and found a way to begin transferring it. So you can see that kind of on the yeah. horizon. Okay, well, I think this is a fairly easy argument, uh, Brian. Um, just, you know, as a non-military analyst, if you were to take a bet on defense industrial capacity and economic potential, uh, who, would you, who would you privilege in, in terms of advantage? The United States and the bulk of Europe or Russia. Oh, that's a no-brainer. Yeah. In a material contest. Okay. <laughs> right. So in a war of attrition, which pretty much comes down to replaceability of manpower, equipment, ammunition, right? And and a question of which force reconstitutes better, with the United States and many Western countries, let's say not to the full extent they could, but generally putting putting their hand rather firmly on the scales, who do you think is advantaged? Well, of course, of course, the Western countries. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that makes that makes sense. That's cool. It makes sense to me too, right? I had, so, uh, yeah, I hadn't thought of it that way because I thought of attrition in terms of just manpower and just the the, the population well, differential between Ukraine and Russia is 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 large. Well, uh, yeah, it is true, but I, but I'll tell you that, uh, and you know, as I often say, Excel spreadsheets don't fight. So mm-hmm. Russia cannot just leverage its population advantage in that manner because it is ultimately circumscribed by their capacity for force employment, which is to say Russia can only field and control and supply so many troops on the battlefield at a time, uh-huh. right? Okay. First and foremost. So even though Russia may have 145 million people, that's not the issue, right? The issue right. is that Russia can only maintain and control a force meaningfully of a certain size in Ukraine, right, that it can sustain. Second, Russia only has so much equipment and so much of a logistics uh, uh, pipeline which also constrains the amount of force it can deploy in field, right? You can have all the people it wants, but it won't necessarily be able to equip them and feed them and support mm-hmm. them, right? Third, 
Russia does have the capacity to mobilize defense industrial production. It has done that over the summer when it comes to things like ammunition production. But they got about it very late. Like, like everything else in Russian political leadership, if, if they make the decision to do it, as you know, I always say this, they do it very late and often they procrastinate to make these kind of decisions. So fortunately, they got about economic mobilization quite late and I think they're gonna have a real deficit for some time. Right, right. Okay. Uh, I'm not saying that everything's great on, on, those, you know, on the Western support side of the equation. There are material availability issues. There are policy issues, right, in, in countries not necessarily wanting to give the things they have to Ukraine or not having ammunition available because, okay, if it's Europeans, and you can safely bet that in many cases, uh, their availability of ammunition and, and munitions is, is likely not going to be very, uh, very good. But that being, that being what it may, I, my general sense of it is that long-term Ukraine is advantaged but that is conditioned on sustainability of mm -hmm. external assistance from the West. Okay, that's just the reality. And it, and that's been the most important factor, I think, since probably May. And the most significant variable is the United States. No offense mm -hmm. to European colleagues, but it's not just because the United States is providing the bulk of the support. It's also because the United States is in the leading court, lead coordinating role of actually physically mm -hmm. channeling the support to Ukraine. And it's also incidentally because their policies are reactive to the United States. That is, they'll only provide things if the United States provides them. If the United States doesn't provide them, a lot of them will often hold back. So they're essentially mm -hmm. allowing the United States to set the tone and tenor of materials right. too, right? Which is their decision, but I'm just saying I think that's the political reality. Right. So we got to basically watch the politics in the administration, which for now, which for now look good. You've said that the 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 um, many analysts are overly optimistic. If you read Twitter about how long this is going to take, do you have a time frame in your head about how how long this is going to drag on? I mean, some people have said a year from now. I I I, I have a hard time kind of gaming it out in terms of how how long this is expected to last. So. Look, I don't have a time frame in mind because, you know, as I often say, it's very hard to see to see into the future of wars. Wars are are by their very nature unstable systems and difficult to pre to predict uh, uh, events in human affairs. In part because they have inflection points, and because whatever phase of the war you're in, you're often thinking that that's how the war is going to go on, but it doesn't, right? If you look at the Russian campaign, you know, up until end of March. You might have one set of expectations. If you looked at it from April to June, you have had another. But then if you look at the Ukraine offensive efforts, right, after August, now you have basically uh, right. an entire third different phase in the war. And maybe your expectations are based on that, right? So right. I, I'd say to give you an answer and a very imperfect answer uh, is I suspect this war will go on probably for another year. I think that's the Russian objective. I don't know if they're able to I don't know if they're able to extend the war that far out, but just looking at Tursan and looking at the fighting in the last couple of months, I do think Ukraine is going to continue to make gains and liberate territory. I just don't think it's going to be anything like Kharkiv. I could be wrong about that, but mm -hmm. I think Kharkiv, I think I think Kharkiv was in many respects a a good break and a, a well-designed operation, but I just I'm very skeptical that that's that's what the future holds. But there's a low probability event that, at least a lower probability event that, you know, parts of the Russian line could really break over the course of the winter. 
right? Mm -hmm. I think I think that's what a lot of people are hoping for, and I'm I'm very cautious in saying I don't think you should necessarily assume that that's what's going to happen. Right. I also don't think you should assume that the Russian military will be able to restore offensive potential thanks to mobilization and dramatically change the trajectory of this war. Right. I think that they may be able to extend it and make it a costly fight over the course of the next year. Right. Okay. Well, before I segue to the second half where I want to talk about this bombing campaign against civilian targets, I did want to touch on this issue briefly of this 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 missile that landed in Poland, which appears to have been a a, a, a Ukrainian air defense missile. What do you know about that and what can we discern and what did we learn from this incident, if anything? Um, yeah, it does look like it was probably a Ukrainian S-300 missile. Uh, it, yeah, the country ultimately responsible for this is Russia because they were the right. ones launching cruise missile attacks and Ukrainians were just trying to defend themselves. And a couple of things I think folks should know. First, errant missile interceptors for air defense systems it, it is fairly common, okay? Especially when they're trying to intercept a missile, they can go off course, they can miss target, they can crash somewhere else. It's not unusual, right? These things happen. Uh, second, probably Ukraine had layered defenses around the uh, uh, western part of the country, and for whatever reason, these interceptors didn't connect with the target and didn't self-destruct either, and, and unfortunately crashed in Poland. But Russia's ultimately responsible, and Russia's ultimately to blame, especially for launching cruise missile attacks that, that are fairly close to the, to the borders of countries like Poland and western Ukraine. Okay, what have we learned from it? Well, First, we learned that thankfully decision makers in power are fairly responsible people. I don't just mean the United States, I also mean in Poland. I was very pleasant, I, I was, uh, I won't say pleasantly surprised, but I did find the Polish reaction, how they treated the episode to be very reasonable, very responsible. Mm -hmm. That is, reserve judgment, let's have investigators on the ground, let's not even necessarily call for Article 4 until we figured out what happened and why, right? That was good. I thought a lot of other people were less responsible, particularly online. I think it's a good lesson for some folks. Hey, guess what? Um, outside of Article Five, there are a lot of there are a whole other set of articles in, um, yeah, in that in that charter. In fact, uh, Article Four, something a lot of people became familiar with. Right. Um, consultations. Yeah, yeah, and I, I kind of joke, but you know, the reason there's an Article Five is because there are four articles preceding it. And I'm not sure anybody's <laughs> ever read those, but. But that's literally why there's an Article 5. There are other articles before it. Article 4 is pretty significant. No, NATO doesn't work in a sense that, you know, there is a missile strike in Poland, unfortunately lives are lost, and NATO immediately declares Article 5, and then just goes to war, right? right? They're, just not, they're just not the reality. That's not, yeah, right. Like, it's important for people to just be cognizant of it. Um, last part, what I think we learned, and here many people may disagree with me, but that's fine, because I hold heretical views on the subject, which is, I don't believe that accidents cause wars. I think wars have political causes. I think that when there's an incident like this, leaders who want to go to war because they want to achieve political aims can choose to use this incident as a causes belly to pursue a war that they actually wanted. I think these incidents often prove to both sides that, hey, Russia does not want to have a war with NATO because it would lose very, very badly. And NATO doesn't want to have a war with Russia either, okay? Right. That's the reality too. Not because NATO would lose, it wouldn't, but because the, well, first of all, it's not necessary. Ukraine is winning, to be perfectly frank. Like, mm -hmm. And second, because of the escalation risk and the uncertainty that it can entail. So to me, these incidents are often revelatory. They, very, they quickly reveal that actually, um, uh, that, not, that neither side necessarily wants to have a war, at least not at this stage mm -hmm. of this conflict. 
But most importantly, it underscores the point that wars do not have accidental causes, okay? Like they have political causes. When incidents like this happen, leaders have the option to manage it, right? To, to calm people down or to use it to pursue policies that they actually already wanted to pursue. So I'm not saying that that's a license to hunt in a sense that, well, if wars can't be caused by incidents, then we can just be reckless and do whatever we want, right? That's not right. the case either. Right. So I'm just being frank, this is kind of my view of, of, of causes of war and, and at least my own perception of, of, uh, of, of international security and how it works. Well, that seems to me that, Michael, that would be a great subject for an article in War on the Rocks, actually, what we learned from from this, because uh, that that's probably the most cogent analysis of that I've, I've, I've heard yet. And it's actually also a great segue into the second part of the program. In a few moments, we will continue our discussion and look at Russia's strategy of bombing civilian targets and energy infrastructure. Is this just a fit of peak or is there a method behind the madness? I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Backed by popular demand, joining me from Mount Vernon, Virginia, on land that was once owned by George Washington, is military analyst Michael Kaufman director of Russian studies program at the CNA Corporation, a fellow at the Kennan Institute, and a senior editor at War on the Rocks. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big, fat five-star rating and review, as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And for now, you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Щастя для всіх, коли Росію вдається вигнати. Щастя, яке буде і у тих наших містах і громадах, які позбавлені Росією нормального життя. І після 24 лютого, і в 2014 році. Ми все повернемо. Повернемо нормальне життя. І знаємо, що мир для України стає ближчим для всієї нашої країни. So just within the past several weeks, Russian missiles have struck 40% of Ukraine's energy infrastructure. The attacks have caused rolling blackouts across the country, leaving 4.5 million people without electricity. In Kyiv alone, 80% of residents are without water and 350,000 homes have lost power. Michael, this seems to happen every time Ukraine makes meaningful gains on the ground. We saw it after Kharkiv and we're seeing it again after Kherson. Is there a military strategy here other than to break Ukraine's will to fight? Is there a method behind this madness or is it just a fit of peak? No, I think there's a method. I actually believe that outside of the initial strike campaign, the early days of the war, when the Russian uh, airspace forces were systematically striking targets that, that they had planned out, uh, and, then, and then everything went pear-shaped for the Russian military thereafter, I think that this strike campaign, which at first looked like a reaction to the Kursk Strait bridge bombing, but then very clearly was a pre-planned strike campaign that's been mm. going on now for quite some time. I think that was an incorrect interpretation of mm. launch. And, and this strike campaign is actually one with a strategy behind it. First of all, it's very clear by looking at the targets that the Russian military is hitting 
that they have a good understanding of Ukraine's uh, electricity infrastructure, capacity for power redistribution and the power grid. They should. A lot of us step down Soviet system. Like right. basically, if anybody would know much about it, Russian, Russian uh, uh, specialists probably would. Uh, they would recognize it as a very familiar, similar system. Uh, second, this campaign, it's, I don't think it's so much focused on breaking the Ukrainian will per se. Now, you could assume that uh, the point of the campaign is to get Ukrainian leadership to get Zelensky to negotiate, right? But negotiate about what? Right. right? There's First, when you look, whenever you look at negotiation, by the way, I'm going to take a minor detour here for a second, because I think you know my views on this. Why, yeah. why basically my position is that the last thing you want to do right now is have any negotiations because... Uh, the logical the logical purpose of negotiations would be to establish a ceasefire. And the only side that a ceasefire helps is the Russian side. Right. Because Russia wants a break to reconstitute its forces. No, we're on the and never knew the campaign. And the reason why right now it's not a timely opportunity for negotiations is you're missing uh, either of the two main ingredients you would look for. The first is a stalemate on the ground, a military stalemate. Doesn't exist. Right, Ukraine actually is winning and is making gains. I'm saying future gains might be harder or more difficult or costly, but nonetheless, there's no stalemate. That's what you want. The second is you're looking for either side to be able to willing to revise its minimal war aims, and there's no indication that the Russian side is willing to revise minimal war aims at all. If anything, they severed their ability to do that by going through with annexation, a constitutional right. annexation. Right. So how's Putin going to revise the fact that he annexed four Ukrainian territories that he doesn't even control? Like, how's he going to undo that? All right. I mean, he could, but it would be costly. No, he could. He could. But the whole reason he did that, I think, is to make clear to the rest of the establishment, to the elite, that there's no turning back. Uh huh. Right. Why did he do it in the first place then? Right. Right. Do you get what I'm saying? It's very clear that he did that in part to commit the regime to this war and to this course of action and to actually reduce his ability. Uh, to 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 re uh, to basically reframe the middle of political warnings in this war. Okay, getting back to the strike campaign, I think the Russian objective is actually to over time reduce Ukraine's ability to sustain this war economically. First, first and foremost, by hitting by hitting the energy infrastructure. Basically. Yeah, because that's important to the functionality of the country, right. right? So eventually, over time, people people will leave the country. Investment won't return. And what Russia is doing is it's raising the cost of sustaining the war to the West, right? Ukraine's budget gap widens. And over time, what they're trying to do is if they can't compel, they can't compel Ukraine to uh, any kind of settlement on, on favorable terms to Russia. I don't think they have any expectations they're going to do that, or I don't know, but I'm just, I'm just hypothesizing here. What they are doing, though, is they are trying to shape a more shakier party to the conflict, right? Mm -hmm. Which is Europeans and other countries who support Ukraine by signaling to them that the cost of the war is only going to go up, right? The economic cost. And that they may ultimately wear down Ukraine's function, ability to function as a country if they keep hitting electricity, the power grid, and water management system. So is Russia basically betting the farm on the winter? I mean, is that can it really be boiled down to that? Is that is that? And if the and if we get through this winter, then Ukraine's going to be in a better place, and the West is going to be in a better place, and Russia's going to be in a very bad place. 
I, I mean, the winter is really important because the Russian, Russian military and the Russian position is most vulnerable heading into this winter. And it can, depending on how it goes, it can really set up at least the next, you know, eight months of this war, right after February, in, in terms of expectations and the trajectory for it. I think Russia's betting the farm on time. Mm. I think they, they, they have de facto suffered a strategic defeat. The, the prospects for restoring offensive potential and actually retaking control of even the territories they annexed, to me, are, are dim, right? But they could try to hold on to what they have and just try to drag out the war. Try to drag out the war until eventually they attain some kind of ceasefire and then use that to reconstitute forces, right? And then and one possibility, and, and I, I think I've been quite frank on this in other discussions, is that there's a fear, there's a fair possibility that how this war ends will only ensure another war. Mm. Meaning another war in Ukraine. Yeah. Yeah. So because, because if you get any kind of ceasefire and no reconciliation, right, of right. these war aims, then what have you agreed to? You agreed to two parties rearming and then a renewal of the war at a later, at a later stage. You've agreed to an Armenia-Azerbaijan interaction. Like you basically, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, no, it yeah, does. You basically, you have, you have fooled yourself into believing you found a settlement, but most likely all you have done is attained a ceasefire and an operational pause where one or the other party will renew the war. Right. So, so in the event that Ukraine does not capture all of its territory, it would be motivated to restart the war. If Ukraine pushes Russia out of all of its territory, Russia will down the road be motivated to restart the war. Is that is that what you're driving at? Uh, I mean, as long as Putin's in power, yeah. I mean, I can't yeah. make predictions, you know, with big variables like what if there's regime change, what if there's right. change in leadership. But let's say all things being equal, the constants that we know about, right. Yeah, I think Putin probably would try to renew the war. Unless Ukraine, of course, gets into NATO, which is not as off the table as it once was. Okay, but I also can't account for that either. That's a pretty yeah. big, you know, that's right. a that's, those are, yeah. produce. So bar, barring big things like yeah, regime right. change in Russia, Ukraine getting in NATO, however this war ends, I mean, if it ends right where the current line is, Ukraine's going to be motivated to restart it. If it ends with Russia being pushed out of everything but Crimea, both sides, to, to a degree, are going to be motivated. Ukraine to retake Crimea, Russia to retake Donbass. So, so no matter how it ends, go ahead. Right, I was going to interject. I apologize, but I think folks have to appreciate if it ends roughly along the lines that you currently see on the battlefield, then a it's defeat for right. Russia is a defeat for Russia is not a victory for Ukraine. Right, right. Then Ukraine loses territory. The Russia actually has territorial benefit from aggression. Right. And even though you can describe as a strategic defeat, you will not be able to go to any U.S. ally or partner and point to that situation and say that that is what success looks like. Right. The Ukraine lost territory, GDP population is dramatically worse off resulting from the war. And this is your depiction of what victory looks like. I'm right. sorry, we'll not be able to solve this. Yeah, no, and I think that is the, of the three scenarios I'm outlining here, that is the least likely, actually, is that the, that is stopped. But I was just trying to make your point of regardless of how this ends. From, right. from from uh, every scenario, barring something that is kind of, uh, you know, really not in our field of vision right now, being something like regime change in Russia or Ukraine getting into NATO, um, both of which I think are, you know, not impossible. 
right? Yeah. Um, no, they're they're all fair other... variables to raise. Yeah. They're all fair points to raise. I'm just, you know, I like not accounting for those, just just working with what we have. Right. I, I mean, moving towards the end here, but the last thing I did want to touch on, Michael, is that, you know, you, you, you laid out this, what is Russia's strategy for the winter? Um, Russia's betting at the farm on the winter and time, I guess we could say. Um, what can the West do now that it's not doing to forestall, you know, pre to prevent Russia from achieving its objectives in this period? I, I had to say this to people, but we're actually doing a pretty good job in, in, in most respects. Um, if you told me before the war that this is how it would play out, even the conventional phase of the war, uh, I probably, I would have disagreed. And if you told me that we would have over time been able uh, to share intelligence with Ukraine, to provide material assistance, to build a sustainable pipeline of equipment, to develop a training pipeline for them, and that, you know, eight months into the war, Ukraine would have the initiative and they would actually be winning and retaking territory. I would say this is a pretty good outcome. You know? Right. Um, that's, that's not, that's a pretty good place to be. Okay, that said, I think the big challenges are all on the economic assistance front. Okay, in long-term supporting Ukraine, uh, filling the budget gap, I think they have at least a $5 billion a month yep. or something like that budget gap. I think they're going to need reconstruction money. $300 I, billion is this number I've seen. Yeah, um, I, I won't do the typical American thing and like rag on Europeans for pledging money and not necessarily delivering it. I know they're taking care, you know, their counter argument is that they're hosting Ukrainian refugees right. and that's costing a lot of money. I don't have that conversation. I find that I'm a military analyst. That conversation should be really interesting for other people, but it's just not mine. It's, it's um, not that interesting for other people. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm just being honest. Like, I don't like these recriminations. All I'm, all I'm going to say is, you know, on the right side of the ledger, it's, it's kind of increasingly clear what Ukraine's needs are going to be, right? And then the question is, is the United States and Europe going to come up with money for that and the assistance or not, right? And how much? So I think that if time's the main factor, then there are two conversations to be had. Sustainability of material assistance. The war revealed that our defense industrial enterprises are woefully inadequate for sustaining and, and uh, ramping up in a timely fashion production of ammunition. But I think we're getting after that and have them. And so there, there will be results down the line. Uh, and, and the second is economic assistance. Mm -hmm and economic support to ensure the country's viability. So these to me are the big issues. I think we could be doing better on the economic assistance front. I think we could be doing better in provision of capabilities that Ukraine needs, like air defense exactly. and air defense, uh, protected mobility, armor. You know, Ukrainians are stuck asking Germans for tanks, and I think Germans are, are, are finding clever ways to um, uh, to not to not agree to those requests. This is my own personal interpretation, but um, I I think we also, if we're thinking more long term, right, that this war is going to go on at least another year, then it's important to have a conversation on tanks, on fourth generation aircraft, and things like that. And I think Ukrainians are very right to raise them, basically saying, look, it's not about today; it's about tomorrow. Because here's the thing. Over time, Ukraine will run out of ammunition for all the Soviet-type systems that they have, right? The longer the war goes on, right? They ran out of artillery first, then they will run out of shells for tanks, right? That's one of the biggest arguments for why Ukraine needs uh, tanks that are manufactured uh, by a NATO country, 
-hmm. right? Or, or at least at the very least, a Western country that uses Western type ammunition. Because you might think, hey, Ukraine has plenty of tanks. They got a whole bunch from Russia that Russia lost to them, right? Russia is technically the biggest provider of equipment to Ukraine. Yeah, that's a great story, except eventually they'll run out of ammunition and parts mm. for them, right? And, and the same thing could happen down, down, could happen for air defense systems and so on and so forth. So this is, this is an area where, you know, material support and getting actually ahead of the problem instead of being reactive to it, I, I still think we could do better. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, and for that reason, all, all eyes are going to be on this lame duck session and seeing what the administration requests and what, what, what Congress actually allocates. Yeah, okay. so I actually, you know, I thought that the midterm election um, wasn't going to really affect U.S. assistance to Ukraine at all. I thought that a lot of that was locked in, and it looks like largely it is, especially with this request from administration. I will say this. I mean, I think presidents really matter when it comes to foreign policy and, mm -hmm. uh, and material support, and that the real question for Ukraine, and this is the question I got, Actually, the question I got most frequently everywhere in Ukraine, to be perfectly honest, mm. was about uh, sustainability of U.S. support yep. from a political perspective. What will midterm elections mean and what will presidential elections mean? And I think my personal answer to midterm elections is that, yes, there are vocal members of Congress who will vocally and performatively challenge the question of assistance to Ukraine, but it won't make practical difference. That's my interpretation. Right. That's However, presidential elections are a different story, mm -hmm. uh, right? And thankfully that we're a couple of years away from that. And we're even just now talking about um, whether this war is gonna go on for another year. But I think presidential elections there, there's much greater uncertainty. Yeah, no, it's, it, it, if this is still going on when we hit the 2024 elections, I think we'll both probably be a little bit, a little bit surprised. Bumping up against the end here, Michael, anything you wanted to add before I wrapped it up? Um. Yeah, I think not too much on my end. I, I, I just want to say that my, my sense of where we are right now heading into the winter is that the outlines of, of both sides' strategies are fairly clear. At the end of the day, you know, my views on board are a bit boring, that it comes down to uh, replaceability of manpower and material, and it's about force reconstitution. I think if Ukraine can be in a better place coming out of the winter, then it will still have the initiative, and it will still be on the offensive. Um, and I think that that there's a likelier outcome than not. Uh, I do think that folks need to be sober minded about how long this war can go simply because wars tend to go on longer than people expect. Mm -hmm. Just to be honest, that's the kind of the tradition of, right. of conflict. So the analytically safer bet is on the fact that the war is going to go on longer than people either want or expect. I'm not saying that because I'm a pessimist. I'm just saying that because most cases lead you towards that interpretation. Right. All right. Well, on that, then we Americans above, above all should know that wars go, often go on a lot longer than we expect them. On that note, we'll wrap it up. That's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And back by popular demand, and joining me from Mount Vernon, Virginia, on land that was once owned by George Washington, has been military analyst Michael Kaufman, director of the Russia Studies Program at the CNA Corporation, a fellow at the Kennan Institute, and a senior editor at War on the Rocks. Michael, thank you, as always, for making a smarter and more enlightening discussion. Yeah, thanks for having me back. 
Uh, thank, you're, you're always welcome. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Dylan Holberg is ably filling in for Lance Lee. in the virtual control room, keeping all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. Dylan also handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many, many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you to subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And for now, you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week, and until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that were prepared by our production team.